Welcome to episode 11 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and we were off last week, but we're back with more camera-related chat. With me tonight, as always, we have Theo Panagopoulos from Sydney, Australia. Hey, Theo. Hey, Mike. How are you going? Good, good, good. Uh, Mr. Anthony Rue from Gainesville, Florida. Hello. I've recovered from my punk rock festival, which is one of the reasons we were not on last week. Yes, he had concerts to see. Thankfully, he escaped this one alive. And from Yellow Springs, Ohio, returning Mr. Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul. Hey, how you doing? Good. Welcome back. Uh, always glad to have you here. Uh, we have some people already in the waiting room, so let's get started and see where this conversation tonight goes. Uh, I'm going to be admitting two additional people. I recognize one, I don't the other, so we'll just see where this goes. We have Hong Lee from Chicago, right? Welcome, yeah. Hong. Hey, how are you? How you doing? Welcome to this chat. Hong, hey, is, that, uh, Hong is that Mike Novak? Yes, it is. Hey, Mike. Oh, I didn't recognize the name. You didn't recognize my, oh, I don't know. I thought I had changed it. <laughs> oh, well, I'm Elcab. Elcab. <laughs> That's Mike. Short, what a surprise. Short for, my, short, for, short for my email address. And I know there's a way to change it on here, but I really don't care. All right. Well, uh, Mike needs no introduction. Uh, he is a regular from Fort Dodge, uh, Iowa. But Hong, um, I, I had picked up, Theo and I had picked up an estate sale out recently. And uh, Hong is the proud new owner of the Sonar 1.5 that I picked up. Uh, and, and he graciously slapped, swapped with me um, a really nice looking Leotax D. Uh, I haven't had a chance to put any film through it yet, though, but I'm looking forward to doing that. But uh, welcome to the show, Hong. Thanks, thanks. How's have you tried uh, fixing the calibration on the rangefinder? It's a little messed up, from what I remember. Uh, I'll be honest with you; that'll take me months to get to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm I have I'm up to my ears with uh, with projects. Plus, with the holidays coming, uh, I mean, I, I did get to play with it. It looks really nice. I'm definitely excited to, to shoot it. Uh, my only other Leotex was a really, really rough K that's mm. um, imagine miraculously works, uh, but is in very, very poor shape. So yours, the one you sent me is is really, really nice, and I'm excited to try it out. But no, I haven't had a chance to really mess with it yet. Great, good, good, good. I oh, had a chance to use the sonar. I, it's very nice. Yeah, it's. Very, I know it's nice because typically when I take family pictures. And I shoot them black and white. My wife yells at me. But <laughs> when I showed her the photos of her and my son that I took with this, she said, actually, those are really nice looking. So I, I know that this is a good lens. So what do you have it mounted to? You were holding up a camera. You know, so I had this mounted to um, an old Fuji X-Pro 1. I have a Kiev body when I want to try this on film. But I have a couple of other lenses that I want to run some film on, on that before this. But uh, yeah, this is fantastic. <laughs> is it a, an Amadeo adapter? Uh, that's correct. Looks like, that, like I'm a dare. Yeah, it, it's a little bit more than I wanted to spend, but it, it works very well. I have, what's I have the significance on the Amadeo? I have one for Sony and Fuji. If ah. his, and I should have bought a Leica and then uh -huh. just adapted the Leica to, to either the Sony or the Fuji. But, it, you know, you never think of that until it's too late. So. You know, that, that's true. I was thinking about the Leica adapter and then like stacking on top of a right. Leica. But I have a couple of lenses, like the, the Decor W 3.5 centimeter, 1.8. Apparently, the rear element's so big yeah. that it, like, it, it won't mount on that. Yeah. So at, at least with this, I can mount that. 
So I think Theo was trying to ask what's special about the Amadeo adapters. Are they just better quality? Yeah, he's unbelievable. Uh, Amadeo Maselli is from uh, Argentina. No, Venezuela. 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 But he's living in Florida now, I think. But uh, right. he was in, in Venezuela. And uh, he's been making adapters for years. They're, they're, they're just absolutely so precisely made. They're now, does expensive. he use... Does he use like a busted a real contacts mount in no, the no. adapter? No, no, okay. no. He's he has a machine shop and he's making them himself. Scratch! Wow, that's cool. They are, they're just works of art. Did he actually? So my understanding was that actually, <laughs> before being forced to go on the Hugo Chavez diet, he left Venezuela, but he had his workshop there. Do you know if he's actually was able to like bring? his machines over from Venezuela or no, I think his staff, his crew is still in Venezuela. Wow. He's up here and he's doing something else, but uh, uh, I I've been in touch with him a couple of times and he, he's just a really nice guy. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think he's, he's having a hard time getting, you know, getting raw materials to his group in Venezuela besides getting them fed. I mean, it's a right. struggle. Yeah, I'll second what Theo said. The the helicon is very smooth. It's very nice. It has like great like a like great like heft to it. For anybody listening who's who's not familiar with the contacts mount, um, it's very similar to the one on the Nikon rangefinders. Um, but the focusing helicoid is in the mount. The contacts mount is actually a dual bayonet. There's an internal and an external, and all the 50 millimeter lenses except the super fast one one lenses that uh, Nippon Kugaku made use the internal mount which has the helicoid but you can also get adapters and this is what i went because i'm cheap uh i got a context external bayonet mount because it was way cheaper <laughs> but uh it, it lets you mount the wide angle lenses and a few others so it, it kind of it, it allowed me to in fact paul you sold me the nikkor uh 3.5 centimeter i think i bought the two five from you back in in ohio at the show oh all right you yeah. remember that yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that one I was able to mount digitally and shoot, you know, but it, I can't do, I wouldn't have been able to do the, the, the sonar that I sold hung. Yeah. So I've, only, I've, I've got two contacts mounts. One's called a two a and the other's called three a. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are, those are the, that's, that's the real way to do it. Does it look like, like, like a broken contacts like this? It does. <laughs> oh. So did does that Amadeo mount come for Nikon too? For the yes, Nikon he makes it for both. He makes one for contacts and one for Nikon. Uh, so I'd like to use my uh, Nikon F one five fifty on a camera that I can actually see through the viewfinder on. I was talking to um, a frequent reader of my site named Terry. He's in the UK. Um, I'd asked to have him on, but it's the middle of the night here while we're recording. But he was enamored with a recent review of mine, the Fujika. ST901, uh, which was an auto exposure screw mount Fuji SLR from the 70s. And the lenses on those screw mount auto exposure Fujis have an additional tab on it, which is kind of like an indexing tab. And most of the manufacturers who attempted auto exposure on screw mount SLRs needed to, in some way, make little tweaks to the mount so that the lens knew where it was. And uh, he mounted, he took the Fujinon lens that came on his and he tried to adapt it digitally and found out that it didn't work on the M42 adapters that he had uh, because that tab got in the way, you know, and uh, he had a discussion or he and I had a discussion together about which adapters you can buy 
which allow for those tabs to work. So the long-winded story I'm saying here is that like not all adapters are created equal, you know? So it sounds like the Amadeo is, is a high quality mount, you know, but right. if you buy, if you get a cheap, you know, what is it? Fatasy uh, yeah. on Amazon, yeah. a, a lot of times those things that you think an adapter is adapter, but it with certain mounts, it's not quite true. Well, it's TNF, tolerant TNF levels, adapter it? does work with the Fuji. Okay. Yeah. I think that he said does. that it did. Yep. Oh, really? so it, it works with like the with the Fuji mount, even with like that little tab. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. when you when you look at the adapter, if if you have an opportunity to see one, if where the screw threads are, it's completely flat. It's not going to work. There has right. to be like a little lip around where the screw threads are, so that that little protrusion on the lens can kind of go behind the lip. So, um, and that that would apply. Mike, you know better than I do. Does doesn't the Yashinon screw mount lenses? It, it, what is the D, the DS? Don't those have a little tab too? I don't think they do. I think the only oh. difference between a DS and a DX were that the uh, DS lenses don't go as far into no, the they're body. Straight, they're straight M forty twos. No no tabs. Oh, they're okay. Well, you know, but you know, when you buy when you buy adapters, you can. Well, the, uh, yeah, the Olympus M forty two lens has a little nub on there. That, oh, really? It follows up on some adapters. Yeah, Olympus didn't make too. Well, they only made just the one screw mount SLR, right? Yeah. F FTX does that sound right? Yeah, FTL. FTL. Okay, I'm just going off memory there. So does Amadeus only just make contacts and Nikon rangefinder adapters, or are they more broadly across all the other types of mounts as well? I think they're pretty specialized on the Camera Quest site. I. I those are the only ones I recall seeing. Yeah, I'm yeah, having a look at that. He now. makes them for uh, Sony, Fuji, and Leica. I think those are the only uh, body mounts that he that he actually produces. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he does make contacts and Nikon for the for the Leicas. It doesn't really matter for the Fuji or Sony because you're you're viewing on an EVF anyway. Right. But uh, with the others, it does. Did you see the weird little adapter that I found this morning? That I your got? Ryan. Yeah, yeah, the Orion. Um, the, the Japanese one from like yes, way back? Yeah, the Japanese one. I Two weeks ago, I bought a, a couple of Barnax and some a bag of LTM lenses from this guy. And uh, he had one camera that didn't want to sell. So I was just looking at, it, looking at it, and I looked in the bottom of his bag, and I saw a little case down there. And I looked at it, and I saw what it was, and I just forgot about it. Well, two days later, I, I sat up in the middle of the night and said, my God, that was an Orion adapter. And so uh, I contacted him and said, hey, I'd like to have that. And so we worked out a deal, and I picked it up today. But it's it's the one that is for the contacts. It's, it's, it was the second version. The first one they made was not marked for either Nikon or, or uh, contacts. The second one, they made them for each. Nikon or contacts. So this is actually the second version. So is it contacts to M39 or yes. contacts to M39? Contacts to 39. Wow. Very, very rare. Yeah, I'd heard about them, but I'd never seen one. Gandhi had a pretty good explanation and identification on it on his website. So uh, I, I was able to confirm it when I saw it. And plus, it had the case with it. The case said coupler on it, which is what they called it. So I, I was sure. Very cool. Orion became Miranda for, for those who don't know that. Yep. 
Oh, wow. This was made, I think, before they made any uh, SLR cameras. Yeah, that was their first product uh, lines were like accessories, adapters. They made a, I think it was called the Focabell. They made some kind of bellows attachment, a bunch of accessories like that. And when they, when they created the Miranda, uh, one thing that I liked about it, we were just talking about how Contax is a dual mount. Well, the Miranda mount is a dual mount, too. Um, there is an external bayonet, which is what most Miranda lenses attach to, but there's actually an internal, uh, I think it's 44 millimeter screw thread. Yeah. And the Miranda lens won't fit on any of them. I can't figure it out. It, it's got, it, it looks like it would fit onto the ex, uh, external bayonet, but it won't fit on any of my Miranda Really? Lines. And it's a, a Miranda, it. it's Miranda yeah. branded it's or a, is it Soligar? It's Miranda branded. Huh. I just can't figure it out. It doesn't look like it's missing anything. Does does it look newer, newish? Like maybe no, it's, it's an older lens. It's older, old. okay. Because yeah. there was um, way after the original Miranda went out of business, there was a ripoff company in the eighties mm-hmm. that made a Miranda camera. I believe it had the Pentax K mount. That was a Casino yeah. camera. Casino, okay. Yeah. But did it use the K mount? Yes, it did. Yeah. 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 I don't know if maybe it could be that. Yeah, and I sold I sold those in my store. They, <laughs> they were actually pretty good cameras. They're plastic. Yeah. Good. Was it uh the same chassis that the FM ten and the older than that? It was older somewhat than older than that, but yeah, it was a, it would look like a chin on basically is what it looked okay. like. I'm I'm pretty sure it was it might have been chin on made, but I, I my memory is that it was Cosina. Okay. That makes uh, sense. The other one I had was recently was a uh, thread mount Miranda, the Miranda TM. Yes, right. They did that um mid seventies, I believe. Um, I don't know. It was a kind of a last hurrah type thing. There's also a uh, a Miranda for um, scientific work that uses a different mount, and I think right. the only lens they made for that was the uh, Macron macro lens. So you have to be careful if you buy one to get one with the with the regular Miranda mount rather than the the scientific mount. Yeah, so but people listening, I mean, are Miranda's quite collectible. Um, yes. So, not many people know <laughs> kind about of. them. Kind of. <laughs> Mirandas are, are in that same category of cameras, uh, roughly as like Petri, where people tend to like them, but they, they often fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're probably better than Petri. Uh, my experience is the older ones are usually pretty good. Uh, but I, I agree with what Mike was trying to say, that I think they're a step up from them. But uh, it seems to be that there is a certain niche of people that, that like Mirandas. I would put them in a similar category to the Virgins. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. the the, the Virgin Adixas. They're, they're 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 not quite at the top level, but they try. And I mean, if you can get one of the Miranda the A through D mm-hmm. ones, uh, they're, they're really old. The Orions are are ridiculously rare, uh, and you'll never find those. But any of the early Mirandas are, are actually quite enjoyable. Anthony, you have one of mine still, right? Yeah. The Automax, right? Yes. Did you ever get a chance to use it? Yeah, yeah, I ran several rolls through it. That's, That's a great right. little camera. Fantastic that, lens. Did that Automax come from me? Did I yes. Send- yes. I have, I have a, a Miranda F. That's a pretty nice little camera. Which did you have, Mike? The Miranda F. Yeah, the F and the G. Those were my two favorite ones. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that I, I liked. Yeah, I'd yep. say the, the lens on the Automax definitely sort of overperforms. 
You know, the, the, the lens is punching above its weight. Yeah, the Seliger lenses were nice. I mean, they they certainly were not. They If if Miranda had problems with sales, it was not due to lack of optical quality that, that they came with. They're, they're attractive looking cameras. You know, like Mike mentioned, they, you know, I think the Virgin Adixas are some of the, the most attractive looking 35 millimeter SLRs ever made. And I would say that the early Mirandas kind of have that same look, you know, a lot of chrome, the lenses are chrome. And, you know, speaking to the adapters we were just talking about, one of the greatest ideas that that company did was uh, they, they knew when they were releasing their first SLR that it would be an uphill battle to get people to want to consider a Japanese SLR. Because um, the Orion was, I think, only the second SLR, Japanese SLR made uh, at a time when people still weren't 100% sold on Japanese cameras. Um, but not only that, the, 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 the risk of developing an all new mount was, was another obstacle, but they were smart in that they designed the Miranda with the dual mounts because they, they designed them to be adapted. So they allowed that internal screw mount. They sold a series of adapters so you could put exacta lenses on it. I believe they had a, a, a Nikon F adapter, probably an M42 and they, they were smart to make the, 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 the diameter of the Miranda mount is quite large. And they needed to do that to be able to fit these other adapters in there. And, and I think that that was kind of like their way of saying, hey, try this Japanese camera. We can sell you an adapter that will allow you to keep using your existing lenses on it. Um, and, you know, but after a while, it, they had other problems. I, I thought Miranda was better known for their um, rather saucy ads. Where was- yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, so here's a fun one for you guys. Um, about four years ago, I was going through a thrift store in Crown Point, Indiana, and I found this little 12-page pamphlet called How I Shot the Miranda Ads. So I, I scanned in the whole thing. Uh, I did an article on it on my site. Um, you know, just basically they, they showed, you know, the, the guy who did these shoots uh, he did actually use a Miranda camera for some of them, but most of them were like press cameras. I think the guy said um, his name was Hal something. I, I, I don't have it in front of me. But um, so anyway, I did this article. You know, he mentions a lady named Nancy is the lady that they used in most of those ads, but doesn't say much about her. You know, doesn't give a last name, nothing else like that. So I posted that probably in 2017. Well, last year, I got a message through my website of the niece of Nancy and says, yeah, that's my aunt in all those articles. And she's still alive. Uh, She speaks highly of that era. She said she had a lot of fun shooting those ads for Miranda. And I'm like, is there any chance I could talk to her? Uh, and, and her, her niece said, I'll ask. And she, you know, took her a couple of days and she came back and said, no, she's, she's a 92 year old woman that has no interest in talking to somebody. Yeah, she's probably you know. still not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you mentioned Hong, the racy ads that they had, and, and they absolutely were known for that. And, um, I just thought that that would be kind of a really cool, just from the historical perspective, which interests me, but, you know, just to think that if any company tried to do something even remotely close to that today, it just wouldn't happen. So, you know, it would be kind of interesting to, to pick her brain on, you know, what she thought of, you know, how that would be perceived today versus then, but well, I uh, think it wasn't meant ads, to be. I think those ads were actually done. The American importer for Miranda was Allied Impacts Corporation, yes, AIC. Correct. And I think AIC actually did those ads. They also imported Soligor at that time. 
Which right. Is why I mean, there was a connection between Soligor and Miranda because of the land. Well, I think Allied Impacts originally was Soligor. Yeah, it would. They, 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 they changed the name to Allied Impacts when they when they brought bought the Miranda brand. Yep. Yeah. So was was the name Miranda? Was that created for the U.S. market for that advertising campaign? Because it, it just it's just a little unusual to me. Yeah. For Japanese brand. Yeah, probably likely. Well, so if you Ryan is not really that common for a Japanese name either. Yeah. So they the first camera was going to be called the Orion. Uh, I got to handle one earlier this spring at a a very illustrious camera collector's collection whose name I will not reveal. Uh, But he outed himself. He outed himself already. Yeah, I I can. You can say it. I can't. (laughs) Um, But I got to hold one of the original Orions. You know, it's just as pretty as the others. The only real difference is it says Orion, but. Uh, I, I guess it's one of those situations like the original Olympus M1, where shortly after its release, they got hit with like a cease and desist. There was some other company that owned the trademark to it. So they changed quickly the uh, name of the camera to Miranda. And then shortly thereafter, that rebranded the whole company. So they didn't originally start out known as Miranda, either the brand or the company, but that quickly became what it was. And in one of my reviews, I think it's for the Sensor X. Uh, I've written so many, it is hard to keep track, but I I found an email from like CompuServe that was on some website from the 90s where a guy who was a former Allied Impacts employee talked about his time working there. And he gave some insight into sort of the dysfunction of the importing. You know, that's, importing was tough, you know, especially when you had uh, in the 50s and 60s, so many brands competing for money. You know, um, Nippon Kugaku had, you know, Joe Ehrenreich, you know, which was was a big promoter for him. And that's one of the reasons they got they were successful. Canon had good importers. But companies like Miranda, uh, Aries, you know, they they were imported through Calamar. Ires, yeah. Uh, I, Fotlander, Voitlander, Footlander. Um <laughs> um, you were the you know, one who put me on to IRES, though. So, you know. Yeah, they 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 had the same fate. You know, they largely went out of business due to poor, you know, marketing or distribution or something along those lines. But, um, but you know, back to Miranda, uh, they they talked about how Allied Impacts um, just th- there was mismanagement there that that caused problems, and they couldn't sell their cameras for whatever reason in Japan. I think there was a law in japan at the time that said uh a majority foreign owned entity cannot sell products domestically in japan so even though miranda was considered like made in japan camera company they were predominantly american owned and they were were built at least for a while i i do know at some point they were sold elsewhere than the united states but my long-winded answer to your question, Hong, is that, yeah, I believe Miranda was always intended to be an, an American-sold camera, uh, at least at least at some point it was. So mm-hmm. it has an interesting history. The cameras are pretty. Uh, the Soligor lenses on them are excellent. You know, the, the catch is just finding one that works. And, and if you do, they're, they're great. You know, I, I really enjoy shooting mine. Um, it seems like everybody on this podcast who's had a chance to handle one, Theo, you might be the exception too, right? Yeah, they 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 haven't made themselves available in Australia too often. So yeah, I wouldn't think so. I come across. Well, to circle back to something that that Theo said earlier, I mean, 
I started buying like cameras to use cameras in the late seventies, early eighties. And I had never heard of the, the brand Miranda until about five years ago when I started getting into collecting circles. Uh, I mean, they just were not common, uh, at least by, by 1980, 81, 82. Um, I, I just, I just never saw them in stores. I, I mean, they made were, I'm assuming they were still imported, but uh, they just, the brand had pretty much vanished by that point. Of course, now they know about them. I might have to go searching for one or two <laughs> because that's the nature of the, of the, the collecting. I mean, Paul or Mike, do you, do you know when they, uh, when they sort of wound down, when did they, uh, you know, what was the swan song for Miranda? Mm, swan no, song was, was 75. Yeah. Mid-70s. And, I, and yeah. I can tell you the exact model that was their last hurrah was the DX three. Yeah. They Miranda, like many other companies, Topcon or Tokyo Kogaku, a few others, they struggled to embrace the era of electronic cameras. You know, Olympus was able to get it right. You know, Canon was able to get it right. Uh, Nippon Kogaku took a little bit of time, but they got it right. But uh, Miranda was just unable to, for whatever reason, succeed in the electronic era but it, as a last hurrah they put out this model called the dx3 which cosmetically is a nice camera feels good in the hands they were mostly in black they did have some chrome ones but they're hard to find um i've had nine of them mm. guess guess how many of them work none none goose mm. egg I think I talked about this on a previous podcast but i finally after nine got one that the shutter fired, it has an LED plus and minus display in the viewfinder. Uh, the shutter worked, the metering seemed to be on par. I was like, holy cow, I finally found the white whale. So I loaded in some film, started shooting stuff. It was 24 exposure roll of something, probably Fuji 200. Got to the 24th exposure, click. All right, got a bonus shot, 25th exposure, click. Wound it again. Oh, two extra frames. That's special. I must have done a really good job loading this one. Click 27, 28, 28. Yeah. I'm like, did I load a 36 in here? And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I just start firing it. Turns out the the take-up spool wasn't spinning. Like there's some <laughs> I did the same thing with my Olympus FTL. Yeah. I was like, oh great, this is so smooth. The, the, yeah. the advance is so smooth. Well, it's because it's not advanced. It's not moving. It's so when you would open it up and take the film out and like look at it with the door open, you wind the lever and the spool would spin. But yeah. I mean, if you just took even the tiniest bit of pressure the from your finger yeah. on it, it like there's a clutch or something that couldn't overcome any resistance at all. So that one was dead too. But uh, I think that was 75 to answer your question. But I truly believe that their their um, quality control started a nosedive around 66, 67. The, the Sensor X, which is the one that has like that big, like plus Dodge Ram looking grill on the front of the Pentaprism, was kind of the last camera that was in that transitionary period where pretty much everything after that, it's, it's, a, it's a crap show whether you'll get one that works. But anything before the Sensor X, like the Automax, uh, Anthony, I think the one that you have is from 61 or 62. I mean, the meter is dead on it, but you know, I don't fault. I won't fault the brand for a non-functioning meter, but mechanically yeah. they seem to be okay. Yeah. But you know, you talk about the Miranda with the electronics failing. You want to talk about the Pentax and the S2? Those were the, the electronics and those were almost as bad as the DX. Oh, were they? Oh, they're yeah. horrible. Yeah. And they have a Miranda rangefinder. 
Yes, they made one rangefinder. Really? Yep. Yeah, it doesn't work either. So the auto <laughs> auto auto set or something is that? Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, but I have here. We'll post a picture of it on the Instagram page. But I have here a Miranda. This is the Miranda A. I got this one from Dan Houseman a while back. I mean, I love how it's got this all chrome lens. Uh, a lot of the Virgins, you know, kind of ha- like have, it's very German looking. It has the the external shutter release, all chrome, you know, very nice leather. It's got, you know, fast and slow speeds on two separate dials, like, a, you know, a 50s SLR wood. Uh, the viewfinder is on this one is just a solid piece of ground glass. So it's, it's not good for people with crappy vision, but it's it's reasonably bright. Film advance is super smooth. And, and I've shot this camera a number of times and it works great. How does um, that have the cable release on the top? Yeah, it does. So you can get an auxiliary shutter button for those. Correct. Right. So you you have the main shutter release on the front. um, And then what Mike's talking about is there's a threaded hole here on the top plate that uh, will allow you to screw in a cable thread. That main shutter release, is that attached to the lens mount? It is, because this particular lens has an automatic diaphragm. So like exacto lenses work kind of the same way. Uh, it's, It's a preset lens. So you set aperture to whatever you want. And pressing the button on the lens first will stop down the iris before pressing the, the main the shutter release. Yeah, so cool. if I take the lens off, there's the main shutter release is here. Right. And then right. you put you put the lens back on and it covers it. And then, like Mike said, if you want, you could just add a cable release to the top plate. So you could do it one of a couple different ways. Everything about that looks very Exacta-esque. Yeah, it's got a very... It, like I said, the build quality is great. The chrome on this is really, really shiny. You know, I, I got lucky with a nice one, but I, I've I've seen quite a number of these late fifties, early to maybe mid sixties Mirandas, and generally the bodies hold up pretty well. You know, as, as much as I love as much as I love the Virgins, um, almost all of them have peeling body covering. Like whatever glue they use didn't, doesn't hold up. You know, I mean the cameras are nice, but cosmetically Virgins don't hold up quite as nicely whereas it seems older mirandas tend to age better the virgins they, they shrink and peel the virgo what what country is that from it, it sounds german virgin mm-hmm. germany which, which east or west the dr west. The- uh this we've we talked about virgin uh the gay we're at i have one here um that's a 127 camera they made uh range finder and scale focus cameras called the edinx so they have all different kinds they made a, a tlr which I think was just a rebadged Richter, though. Uh, I don't believe they ever made their own TLRs from it's scratch. Re- rebranded Montanas. The Montanas, yeah. The Montanas. This is this is a pretty little... That's one of my favorites. Good shooter, too. So is the Montanas a Virgin? No, no, Montanas is a German company, too. They they made uh, TLRs, and they made a couple of rangefinders, too. One of the rangefinders looks I'm good. looking at the Super Reflex uh, TLR, and it's a Cool, they're gorgeous. I, I have one. Is it within arm's reach? Um, nothing in here is within arm's reach. <laughs> That's okay. Just we'll just we'll just pretend like we're ooh and awing over it, and then <laughs> you could send Anthony a picture, and we'll include it in the Instagram yeah. page. But no, they're very pretty. Yeah. Now, don't don't the Montana tightest frame spacing of any camera I've ever used. They're literally right on top of each other, and I think it's designed that way. It's like the Pirkeo, so you can get a thirteenth exposure. Well, you could, I suppose, but you'd have to kind of guess when to stop. Okay, running. I gotcha. Now, there's, just, enough room on the, there's enough room left on the on the strip to get it. Now, I saw one of the Montana's TLRs. I don't know if it's yours. It has actually room for a spare roll of film. Yeah, the, the Virgin model doesn't have that. 
Okay. But they did make one like that though, where you could actually put in a second roll of film to keep mm-hmm. inside the camera. And the, the sports finder is a piece of semi-silver glass on the, uh, the top of the viewfinder, which is really, really not a great idea because in bright light, you have to cover that with your hand in order to be able to focus because it lets in too much light. But it looks cool. Can I ask a question, just kind of pulling back more towards like a 30,000 foot view of the industry? So it seems like we're talking a lot about cameras from like the 50s and 60s. So that transition between like the rangefinder era to like the SLR era. Well, I mean, is that is that roughly right uh, in terms of like the, I guess like the change in technology or like the transition technology from like the rangefinder style? And this is for like the 35 millimeter. Right. Yeah. SLRs um, really started to gain momentum in the early to mid fifties. You know, pr- prior to that, SLRs were a lot different than we're used to them today. They didn't have instant return mirrors. They almost always had very dim viewfinders. Uh, a lot of times they were very, very slow. You know, you would have to actually cock the uh, shutter to actually drop the mirror down. There were there were quite a number of disadvantages for a pro who wanted to shoot photography professionally that SLRs just weren't up to snuff. Now, obviously you have the benefit of through the lens composition. And as the years went on, they got more advanced, you know, uh, Azahi released the first camera with like an instant return mirror in the fifties. You just started to see innovation after innovation. And then I think it was the, the, the Vietnam war. And when the war correspondents started using the Japanese cameras, mm-hmm. which is when SLRs really started to catch on in the U.S. So, so it sounds like there was a lot of experimentation in the 50s and early 60s just to get that form factor correct. And it sounds like there's some overlap in like the, the changeover, the, the countries of, of origin from Germany to Japan around that time period. Yeah, it, it just depends on the company. Like, you know, uh-huh. Nippon Kugaku released the, uh, had the their range finders in the 50s. And once they released the F in 59, it was so popular and sold so fast, they actually had to phase out their rangefinders faster than they wanted to, to be able to keep up production. Um, some companies took a little bit longer to get into the SLR game. Canon continued to produce rangefinders till the mid to late 70s. So, you know, there was, it just depended on what market, you know, the original SLRs were expensive, they were slow. But, you know, to, to do a quick transition here, in, in the interest of an open source podcast, uh, we were just talking about somebody who just magically appeared. We have Mr. Ira Cohen just joined in. And, you know, Ira's got a, a good number of, you know, cameras from that sort of transitionary period. And as a collector, you know, as, as much as we love, you know, the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s Japanese SLRs, you know, by then, people pretty much figured out how an SLR should work. So there wasn't quite as much experimentation in that era. You know, there's certainly differences, of course, but if you're a collector and you like kind of quirky cameras that are just a little bit different, 50s SLRs are probably my favorite. You know, they, for one, they, they just have a unique look, you know, um, here's a Topcon R, you know, which is massive. It has that front shutter release like the Miranda does. Um, I have a Konica FS, which kind of looks rather generic, but um, it has a copal square shutter on it, which is really cool. Mike's holding up a Practiflex. Yeah, with the, uh, with the Zeiss. With the prism. Prism oh, okay. All right. So yeah, the Practiflex only originally came with a waist level, but there was an add-on pentaprism that Mike has that you can kind of slide in there. 
I don't know if this answers your question, Hong, but like if you like strange oddity cameras, you know, 50s SLRs are definitely kind of an experimental age. Just sometimes they're not the easiest to use. Well, Mike, I know that you and I both have an affinity for the Bessomatic. Yeah. The leaf shutter of Woodlanders. Those yeah, are beautiful. Just a stunning, like weirdly over-engineered. I mean, it's kind of a cliche to say yeah. that you know, those cameras are over-engineered, but they were over-engineered. Yeah. Uh, but they even over-engineered for a Voigtlander. Yeah. But they're yeah. they're so much fun to shoot, and they've got great lenses, and they just they just feel like this, like just like the the, the clockwork machinery in them is 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 you can tell that you know they were all throwing everything up against the wall to see what would stick. And, uh, you know, a lot of that did not trickle through to successive generations of, of SLRs. But the, when you get a really cool one, they are so much fun. Speaking of over-engineered cameras, I want to follow up on something from the last show. Uh, my, my poor contacts one that I blame Ira for me owning, by the way. Yeah, this one does work. The shutter is a little bit wonky on it. I have a feeling it's, it's days are numbered, but um, it will not be getting a CLA. For, for one, there's only one person in the world uh, who can do it. His backlog is many, many years. And the, the, the rightful, by no means, is this a knock? I, I'm not complaining at what he wants to charge because when you're the only person on the planet that can do something, you can charge what you want. But uh, it's rather prohibitive to get uh, a contacts. One. I don't know how you could get it fixed. How's that? Time machine? You gift it to Eric Sluis. He'll send it to Rick Van Nuji. He'll do it? To Eric, who will send it back to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just go on the shelf. <laughs> but yes, uh, the Foatlander Leaf Shutter SLRs, most, most Leaf Shutter SLRs are pretty over-engineered because it, it, they had to jump through a lot of hoops to make an, a Leaf Shutter work correctly on, on an SLR, regardless who made it. I don't think uh, Ira's it's a contradicting it. design, isn't it? It's a contradicting yeah. design. Can I just say that Ira, the Ira needs to unmute himself? Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. Welcome, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Ira. Thank you kindly. A um, couple of things that you said that I disagree with. I think it was more the pentaprism viewfinder rather than the instant return mirror that contributed to the popularity of the SLR because then action could be followed instead of using a waist-level viewfinder. Right. I also think that the SLR, 35-millimeter SLR cameras became popular following, really, the introduction of the Nikon F. It wasn't until maybe five or six years later that the Vietnam War even began, much less was at its height as it was in the early 70s. So I really think that you know using these things with these giant telephoto lenses and through-the-lens viewing, especially right side up and correct left to right sports photography. I mean, it was a natural for those things. And that is what I think more than anything else contributed to that popularity and in, you know, very rapid growth. It was pretty quick. You know, the, I don't want to say there ever was a death of the rangefinder because certainly, you know, Leica has continued to release or lights has continued to release uh, cameras uh, Canon, like I said, kept making a Minolta, kept making rangefinders for quite a while. But uh, the, the Nikon F was the announcement, the statement of the SLR is in fact here. And, you know, with, within a few short years, prices came down dramatically. Um, I, sh I showed a, a Konica. This is the FS. And the reason I have an FS is because you cannot find a Konica F. Do you have one, Ira? No. No. Yeah. Even if, if Ira doesn't have one, you know, it's hard to find. But the Konica F 
was the first SLR. They beat Canon by a couple months with a one two thousand top speed and an SLR shutter. You know, it had just crazy amounts of technology for a camera released in 1960, but it was expensive to make. You know, it was hard to hard to make re- reliably, and people just didn't buy it. But you know, uh, Yashica, you know, released. SLRs in the 60s, which were less expensive, Minolta, Konica, uh, Olympus got in the game. You know, most of the Japanese manufacturers started releasing more cost-effective. You have to remember that the first Leica Flex was just introduced five years after the Nikon F. It was not that long afterwards. Uh, 62, maybe? 63? 64, I think it was. 64, yeah. That formed the external CDS meter. Right, yeah. Well, well, I said, you know, the, the Zeiss did the Contrax in, I think, 60. Uh, low, low volume sales. The Leica Flex originally didn't sell in huge numbers. Um, I, I think the Japanese generally had kind of a leg up in that market. You know, they just, they got to it quicker. Yeah, and also, get the labor costs in Japan at that time were much less than in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I so think all the companies... The- Worked closely together sometimes. So, so let me ask you this More question. More so than in Germany. But sorry. Let me ask you this question then. If I put myself in the place of a consumer back in 1960, 1959, when the F came out, was it that obvious of a, I guess like, was it that obviously superior to like the rangefinders and the other SLRs at the time that that was like the SLR to get? Um. Yes and no. If you said you're a consumer, you wouldn't have known the Nikon. Right. (laughs) The target market. The target market. um, Well, keep in mind that they were, I don't think we're prepared for the demand of it. So it took them quite a while to really get up enough production to where people, it really wasn't until 60 or 61. Um, I did a Kepler's vault. I think it was the 1960 Philadelphia show which was the very first time Americans really got a chance to see the Nikon F and, you know, people, regular people would have only read about it in a magazine. Uh, but, 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 but availability and manufacturing capacity aside were the benefits of yes. the SLR system. Yes. That yes. Met, because like I'm a relative latecomer to like range finders, but to me, the process seems a little bit more abstract. I mean, within that's why it, I mean, it's very easy to understand what's going on. Well, that goes back to what Iris was talking about before about the the greater ability to shoot action with the pen and prism right so by the time the nikon f came out people kind of already knew how an slr was supposed to work but why the nikon f was so much was so different and had a different trajectory than pretty much any other camera company until you know canon really didn't even begin to compete until they had the f1 and i think 71 so so for Basically, 12 years, nobody was competing with Nikon. Uh, and, and the reason for that is the, the people, um, Masahito Fuketa, who was like the, the main guy in, in Nippon Kugaku, he knew that in Japan, he talked to the pros. The, 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 the Nikon F was developed from the ground up always to be a professional's camera. It had a motor drive from the beginning. They were smart to release a, a good selection of lenses along with it. It had a new mount, a large mount that could handle fast lenses, heavy lenses. Uh, it was don't forget the ability to interchange finders with meters. 
Right. Was yep. It was a system. It was a it system, was a system camera. camera. The the motor drive was a big deal. That's something mm -hmm. that Canon screwed up on with the the Canon Flex. Okay, the Canon Flex had the bottom trigger, which was cool. It it's really in fact, Anthony, you have my Canon Flex too. Uh, it worked really, really well, but there's a difference between doing this with your hand, trying to rapid fire a camera and having a true motor drive. One thing about if you have Mike, is that an, a Nikon F in, in your hand there? Oh, that was a Tafcon. Okay. Huh? One, you know, the, the level of quality, good. one area I remember Robert pointed this out to me about the, the Nikon F is if you take the lens off of it with the mirror down, take your finger and try and lift the mirror, you can't because it locks. You know, a lot of SLRs, the mirror is just actually sitting down. You can pop it up and down. Uh, they created a locking cycle for the reflex mirror and the Nikon after every shot that would stabilize it every single time. And they managed to put a motorized drive on a camera that could unlock, flip up the mirror, fire the shutter, lower it back down, lock it, unlock it, flip it back up and fire the shutter over and over and over again without fail. And they, they put so much effort into building a camera that the pros would want. Of course, it drove the prices up quite a bit. To answer your question, if you were the target market back in 59, 60, 61, when you looked at the, the Nikon F, absolutely, that was the camera for you. And, it, and that's why it, it, it had the success that it did. Yeah, Hung, I think that if you were in 19, and, and Ira can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but if it was like 1962 and you were like a prosumer kind of shooter and you went down to the, your shop in New York City and you picked up the uh, exact uh, Varex, like a VX, or you picked up uh, Kodak Retina Reflex and you might pick up a Bessomatic and then you pick up that F, it's like looking at a uh, Ford Mustang versus a Tesla. Huh? You know, it's like you, you, you go to that, 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 you know, the, the difference between the F and, and the others, you know, it was just an evolutionary leap and yeah. it's pretty, you know, it's pretty apparent once you picked it up, once you fire it, once you look through it, once you recognize what the, the system components could do, uh, that it's just a different, I mean, it was just, it, it was a genre defining camera and it really changed the game. Yeah. One of the things that you may be uh, forgetting about, the Nikon rangefinder cameras traditionally were not as rigidly constructed as the ones from uh, Leica. Uh, the Leica was like a one-piece body and everything. It was pressed. The Nikon always felt like it was made of sheet metal. The Nikon F changed that. It's a very, very rigid camera, not as rigid as the Leica Flex, true, but still, you know, world's different than the difference between the Nikon and like the rangefinder cameras. And, and rigidity. You have, to, you have to do that if you're going to have a motor. Doing the SP built in the same, uh, same chassis yeah. as the Nikon F. The S, correct. The SP and the SP. Nikon F were developed side by side. With, with, with the exception of the mirror box and the pentaprism, the SP and the F share about 95% of the same parts. And I, yeah, I got well, every, the top decks are arranged the same and everything. Right. Um, and then to speak to, to what, what Iris said, that was Lights' justification for continuing to do bottom loaders is for that rigidity. They, they, they did not believe. I mean, there probably were other reasons, too. But if you, know, if you look at a, a Barnack Leica, it's essentially like a tube kind of that's squished, yeah. you know, that's round. And that's I mean, I know it's more elaborate than that, but. Um, you know, Leica's always were, were rigid cameras and were very solidly built for that reason. And as soon as you put a hinge on a body that you open, if you remember, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen an, a Nikon F or any of the rangefinders, the back completely removes. 
So, you know, basically the back isn't providing a whole lot of structural rigidity. It, it all is the front and the insides of the camera that give it its strength. Um, which, you know, one, one other point about the uh, rigidity, um, just because you take the bottom and back off the camera, it does not mean it necessarily compromises the rigidity. Um, I mean, I hate to bring it up because I am kind of partial to that brand, but you take an Alpa, there's nothing like it. It's unbelievable. I mean, you could take the back off and you still can't deform any part of that thing. I think it's made of some kind of cast magnesium. I have no idea what, but it's a very, very different feel than any other camera, including like yeah. his. Yeah, I, can I, I got can I, really, can I ask you this question kind of as a follow up to that? So in the rangefinder era, like had made this leap with like the M, they, they had all this like, they had all these advantages in terms of like manufacturing, well, I don't know about manufacturing, but certainly like consumer base, whatever. What was behind Leica's, I don't know, unwillingness or inability to really fully make that transition to the SLR era? Because it, it, it doesn't sound like it's technical or technological. Is it because of like they're, they weren't willing to compromise their existing product? I don't have an opinion on that one. <laughs> I would guess I would guess it was a willingness. I don't know that it's that they couldn't. I there's there's rumors and I don't know if this was true, but there's rumors that the like effect flex was in development for eight years. I, I don't know that that's true. Uh, it's probably closer to three or four, which at the time three years was on average the development cycle for an SLR. Uh, I would guess Ira, unless you have something else to add or anybody else, Paul. I have a feeling lights just had no interest in SLRs and just chose to not try, at least not wrong, for wrong a while. market decision. It's a wrong market decision, possibly. Yeah, that's my guess. But you know, like like I think I think the Nikon is a really good example because you know, realistically, even though they were a, a big name, they were a small company. Like in the fifties and sixties, Nippon Kugaku was much smaller than Canon. You know, Canon had a lot larger capacity. Uh, they had more people working for them. Like I said earlier, part of the reason, you know, you don't see too many rangefinders from Nikon in the sixth. I mean, yeah, they did release the S3 and the S4, but those were in small numbers. But, you know, Canon continued to make rangefinders. Minolta continued to make rangefinders. Yashica did. A lot of those companies did. But Nippon Kugaku, once they had the F, they pretty much gave it up. So I think that, you know, they, they went one way and, and lights kind of went another way. Um, you know, they certainly did well with their, with their SLRs, but, you know, for, for, for lights to build the Leica Flex to their standards, um, I'll just skip ahead to the point where they had to partner with Minolta to get the costs down because they just couldn't, they, they, they couldn't exist selling SLRs with their level of quality while also having it made in Japan. Um, so, I mean, and if, if I'm wrong, somebody please correct me, but. I, I believe that's just, it's a, it, it was a choice they made. It wasn't that they couldn't do it. Yeah, I think it was all marketing. I mean, every single thing you've said so far, it wasn't an inability, the company to do one thing versus the other. It was all marketing. Right. Like thought it could survive by just concentrating on the uh, rangefinder cameras. It saw that its SLR cameras did not sell very well comparatively. And right. therefore, did not want to spend the money developing more advanced models until they got to the R8. And when did the R8 come out? Do you know? No idea. But it was, that was 90s, wasn't it? Um, 
R8 would have been, yeah, the 90s, mid-90s. Yeah, so you're talking... R9 was discontinued in 97 or 98. So you're, you're, you're considering the, the first Leica Flex is, what, 63, 64? Well, and then if, it, if what you said is true about the three to four-year development, they probably started developing it um, probably as soon as the Nikon F came out. Yeah, that's my and, guess. Didn't you say eight years though? That it, no, that that's that, interesting. I don't. Okay, that's just a rumor. I read that somewhere. I I've heard no factual information that that's true. It's it's plausible. Maybe in the mid fifties, there was a lights memo like, hey, maybe we should look into doing an SLR, and maybe that's where somebody got that number from. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it it would seem like an awful waste of resources to be working on a product that you didn't even get out for eight years. You know that would that would suggest that. Uh, they probably went through several revisions, but I, I've, I've actually found no facts to that. It's just an urban legend. And the three-year development cycle, uh, late 55, is about when Nikon started working on the F, and they had it ready uh, March of 59. Uh, Yashica started working on what would become the Pentamatic in late 57, and they acquired Nikka because Nikka could build focal plane shutters and Yashima at the time couldn't. So they part of the reason Yashima bought out what was left of Nikka was because they wanted to make an SLR. Um, I believe the what was the first Minolta? Was it the SR2? That had a three-year development cycle too. So while there's certain... Say that again? SR, wasn't it? No, no. Well, it was, I think it was the SR2. I think the was the SR2 first one. The SR2 came out before the SR1. Well, yeah. So the SR2... <laughs> the same way the Leica M3 came out before the M2. But that makes sense, though, because that has to do with, with the number of frame lines, right? The M3 has three different sets of frame lines, and the M2 has two. Why they named it the SR2, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't and know. That, well, you know, as somebody with OCD tendencies, that just bugs the hell out of me. <laughs> well, the uh, Zeiss released the 10X2 before the 10X1. So I'm not defending it, but there's certainly history. Yeah, they, they renamed their cameras 10X since the 30s, if not the 20s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a plate camera called the 10X also. Yeah. Well, there are three different Perkios, completely mm -hmm. unrelated. Uh, if, if you have OCD, cameras are not a good hobby. <laughs> yeah. even, even, even Leica, the M3 came before the M2. Yeah. So, right, that's correct. No? Mike, I'd like to... You know, earlier we were texting back and forth, and I think this was uh, this was brought on by your 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 trade uh, with 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 for the the uh, Lee attacks. Yes, and and so going back, you know, stepping back from the SLR world, um, your question that you posed was, uh, when is uh, oh yeah, when is a Barnax copy still a Barnax copy, and you know, what point do these cameras, these companies in Japan and elsewhere that are making uh, knockoffs of the original Barnack uh, designs. Uh, at what point did they evolve to the point where you can no longer consider them to be a Barnack copy? Yeah, that yeah, is the basis of the two books called, you know, three hundred Leica copies and uh, the other one. Yeah, I mean, at what point does it become its own camera as opposed right. to a copy? Does it have a thirty-nine millimeter thread uh, lens? Does it have a focal plane shutter? Are those the two things that you're going to base it on? Yeah, if that's true, no matter what they look like, they're all like a copies. Yeah, 
And that's, that's kind of the approach I think I would take, but you know, there's going to be people out there that take the complete opposite that if you have to copy a Leica, then it's no longer a Leica, you know, they'll have that, that stance of it. Uh, certainly some companies stayed truer to the original formula than others. Leotex was one of them. Nika was as well. Cardin um, was the biggest. Cardin. Yeah. Cardin actually was, well, well, in, in fact, Cardin, the U S camera, came out of the inability for E-Lights, Ernst Lights of New York to actually build an American Leica. And uh, Peter Carden volunteered himself to reverse engineer uh, the Leica, but even he changed things, you know, he, he made the cameras internally different so that they could be all assembled on a machine rather than hand built like, like Leicas were. But, you know, externally, functionally, they're basically the same. The original Canons did not even have a screw mount. Uh, they had a, a version. What is the most Leica like of all the Leica copies? I would I would say it Nika and the Leo Tax. I know there's like honors and there's all this crap Ira has that I can it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but of 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 the brands you're likely to encounter, my vote would be uh, some of the earlier Nikas and Leo Taxes are the closest. Even Canon, you know, like I was saying, the original Canon rangefinders did not even have a screw mount. When they finally did release a screw mount, they called it the J mount. It wasn't compatible. It wasn't until I think 52, maybe 51, uh, that Canon started making rangefinders with a true M39 like a thread mount. I think but, that was the S2. Yeah, but right. You're, that sounds right. Uh, but even then, you know, Canon did the combined rangefinders with the spinning prism, which, in my opinion, is an upgrade. But, you know, that's not how Leica was. So it, it, you're already starting to see differences. Car Canon always had kind of angles. You know, if you look at the body of a Canon rangefinder, it's like almost like hexagonal as opposed to round. Uh, you know, you know, the Soviets, you know, the, the Zorkis and the Feds were tried to be, you know, as close to the original as possible. But, you know, the, the Feds were built by children, you know, so quality control was very different. You know, they, they, they cut corners where they, you know, rightfully so. The camera was meant to be cheaper from the beginning. Um, I, I had a friend that gave me a Fed 3 and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's like a copy. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing going, there's really yeah. nothing like about this except for the thread mount. Yeah, I, uh, I like for me, it has to at least kind of look like it. I guess that's my vague criteria. If it doesn't at all look like the original, then it, I don't like calling it a copy. But, you know, that's just me. But well, isn't the one, that not the ones that are gold with, you know, Lufthansa? Right. Berlin, <laughs> Berlin, 1936 Olympics on it. Aren't they the, 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 the true copies? Yeah. What, what about Canon 7? Yeah, so, like, that's a great example. Like, Canon, like yeah, uh, Mike <laughs> just held up a Claris uh, MS35. But, yeah, the Canon 7 is a really good example of the Canon continued to evolve the what originally started out is kind of a like a copy you know they changed the body design they switched to a combined quincent image range finder uh, they started adding meters you know the canon 7 really other than the focal plane shutter and the same mount isn't at all the same camera as how they started so but is is it a like a copy i i would i would argue that a camera like the 7 calling it a like a copy is almost a disservice to it because it's so different of a camera to me it stands on its own as, as a really fantastic shooter my least favorite canon the seven yes just it's big and it's ugly it's just didn't like it didn't it's like big. it i gave it away gave it away so does that and does anybody else have anything to add on that i don't know yeah why aren't you mentioning the 7s 
That's seven S to a bigger level. At least it had an accessory shoe. Yeah, but it did need a battery. Yeah, that's right. It did because it had the CDS meter. So what, what I was talking about is when Canon released the seven, they completely omitted the accessory shoe. It does not have an accessory shoe at all, which puzzled a lot of people. But then with the S, they added it back. So think about it. You have an interchangeable lens rangefinder that you have no easy way of attaching auxiliary viewfinders to. Now, granted, the seven does have multiple frame lines. But a lot of people don't like that. You know, if you if you're visually impaired like I am, using auxiliary viewfinders is far superior than any combined multiple frame line viewfinder. That's why to me the VL is the best can because it is an uncluttered viewfinder, accessory shoe with a parallax correction. Yeah. In the, in the viewfinder magnification. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of great examples out there. I mean, I, I I'll defend the Soviet copies because you know they were never meant to be at the same level of Leica, you know, so many people kind of shit on them and say, you know, they have lower quality control and it's like, well, yeah, you know, they, they sold for a quarter of the price. You're not going to get the same level of quality. They um, are what they are. They are what they are. And, and honestly, find one that works. I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've had probably the same exact luck with, in regards to pinholes and an old Leica versus old Soviet cameras. To me, it, your odds of getting a camera with pinholes is completely random, regardless if it's Japanese, American, Soviet, German. You can have the bands more than anything else on storage. Yeah, mm. that's true. But it's of not. Course, if you spend 80 gazillion dollars on a camera, you're going to probably store it a little better than if you spent 20 bucks, including the lens. Yeah, that's true. And that's a good point, too, because. I know none of us think this way, but you know, today we live in a disposable culture where we're throwing away cell phones every two to three years. You know, you buy a digital camera, you kind of expect it to die after 10 or so years, maybe 15. But you know, people bought those things with the intent of never getting rid of them. Uh, and an old didn't. and they didn't. Yeah. An old Leica yeah, was was a, was an heirloom. Yeah, we got them. <laughs> I, you know, Paul had to jump out. He did warn me he was probably going to have to go to sleep pretty soon. But I, I wish we had more of a chance to talk to him because Paul's picked up a couple of really cool estates uh, recently. He's gotten some shipments from a guy down in Texas. And I, I don't know a lot about that, you know, how he got those. Uh, Paul is just he's one of those guys that has that that connection, you know, to be able to get whole estates from from good collectors. And, you know, his eBay story has got really cool stuff. I don't think we had a chance to mention it, but we had our guest, was it two weeks ago? Michael, what was his last name? Yeah, I don't remember. No, it was the other, it was the young guy that we told oh, him to get oh. the six by six. Oh yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say something about that. Yeah, go up. No, yeah. You gave some really bad advice about which <laughs> six by six. No, don't, hang on, Mark. Don't say don't say that. Never a word about the green glue with the Agfa and the Ansco, Ansco folders, you know, seven out of 10 of them, guy's going to get this beautiful looking camera, clean lens, and it's going to be stuck on the focus <laughs> at seven feet or something. <laughs> well, that's a know, get, get, get a Boylander dice uh, icon and 70% well, chance it's going to work. We, we did not actually have Paul on that show, but he ended up finding his way to Paul anyway, and Paul sold him a Speedex. So, um, well, I, yeah. If you I, get I, one from Paul, you're probably okay. But yeah, well, it was a it was a good tip. 
<laughs> Otherwise, you're going to buy one, and then you're going to send it to Jergen, and then you're going to wait six weeks, and then maybe you'll be able to shoot it. I don't know. Anthony has a Jergen story. Yeah, I just sent him my. Uh, I have a 1933 530A and a, a 1955 532 16B seven day turnaround. And then he dissed on this beautiful camera. What's that? That's the uh, Kodak Tourist. He won't touch Kodaks. Oh, this is a beautiful camera. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I told Anthony, I go, you if you get Jurgen or Jurgen, uh, if if he'll agree to do a monitor, uh, six twenty, I, I will send him mine. That is that is one I want to get working. Mine's properly. wrapped. Mine's wrapped in just permanently wrapped in neoprene so that I can shoot it. <laughs> he made rigid bellows. Yeah, yeah. So so Ira. It's interesting seeing you, you know, on here because, gosh, I, you know, your selection of cameras just, just mind blowing. Have you had any the blue chair though? I got to sit in it. Did you look? I think he's going to show us. <laughs> yeah, right. there it is. I got to sit in the blue chair. <laughs> okay, what's the significance of the blue chair? So for for years, when Ira would share a camera, he just put it on this blue chair, and that was his background. You know, he had he he'd have like a five thousand dollar one of a kind gold plated Alpa on like a thirty dollar Kmart chair. First of all, it's not a thirty dollar Kmart chair. I took it from my neighbor's garbage pile. Okay, <laughs> it's a nice chair. I, I got to see it in person. That's great. Well, we've been talking for a little over an hour. Uh, Hong, was there was there any other questions you had for us? Um, one one thing I was impressed, you know, when when I shipped my stuff to Hong, I realized his address. You're you're a block away from Central Camera. You know, that's the office where I work. It, oh, is it okay? Right. So the location is very good, but also very bad because I end up spending more than what I'd rather. You know, but <laughs> it, I mean, it's a nice mental break. Yeah. Work. You can always, you can always walk the other direction to to, to Markin. To mark no, that's worse. <laughs> no, that's much worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's on Michigan Avenue, right? I mean, you're basically across the street from the Art Institute, right? Maybe a block down. Right that's the CSO. That's yeah. right. Oh, it's a great location. Yeah. Very photogenic. I'm I'm jealous. Your your lunchtime camera walks are far more interesting than mine. <laughs> you know, you would think that, but the fascinating thing to me is I spent like two years trying to figure out what to shoot, and I just you know, I'd shoot stuff and it would look terrible, you know? So, you know, just, it's one, it's one of those things sometimes when you're like, I guess like surrounded by what should be riches, you know, if you, if you can't see what to shoot properly, yeah. it really makes no difference. Yeah, it, sometimes it takes somebody not from an area to, yeah. you know, come and say like, oh my God, I want to shoot, you know, where you're at, you know, whereas you'd come up by me and be like, oh, cornfields, I can't wait to take pictures of that. You know, Mike, oh. Mike, what, what, oh, what kind of scenery are you It's one thing I try to avoid taking pictures of. Yeah, and soybeans. <laughs> so Mike, have you had any pickups lately? Anything interesting? I got a uh, light meter when I ordered a viewfinder. You ordered a viewfinder and they sent you a light meter instead? Yeah. Yes, and it's a TT artisan okay. finder, which is a, it's basically a direct copy of the Dumo, or it is a Dumo, just rebranded. Okay. But yeah, I wanted to price. buy it. This was, a, I, I originally spent $50 on the, or the 21 millimeter TT artisan's viewfinder. Okay. So they shipped me this thing, and I said, You sent me a, a light meter instead of the viewfinder. So they refunded my money and closed the case. And then I found that 
Edorama is selling the uh, viewfinder for $36, $37. So I bought, the, I bought it from them. And I was hoping that it would be here by now, but it's not. Yeah. How good is the meter? What's that? The meter is fine. It's good, well-made metal. Well, Hong has the Dumo meter. He can tell you probably more about it than I can. I only used it once. But it is, it's exactly the same thing. It, it, it seems to work well. I don't know if it's the meter because modern film is so good, but I've, I've had workable results with it. Yeah, I shot the one roll with it last weekend and everything was fine. That's cool. Yeah, you shot uh, the Claris recently, right? Yeah, I shot the Claris last week. Is that meter? Is that how you metered it or did you just guess? No, that? no, no. The, the, um, the Claris, I just sunny 16. Cool. Theo, anything now? No, no, I think we, we I think we briefly mentioned that last time, just as we were closing off, you touched that was the Oh the tower. Or no the Mamiya. Yeah. Mamiya. Mamiya thirty five automatic. Yeah. Which um which was interesting because I went over to um the, the person that was selling it and he he sort of says, Oh, you know, you collecting cameras? And I said, Oh yeah, yeah, I am and he goes, Oh, look, you know, my father's dead, my two brothers are dead, you can have all theirs. And, um, <laughs> thought, okay, what, what do you say here? That's, that's a very awkward yeah. way of saying it. I'm but, sorry um, for your loss. Sure, let me see what he's yeah. got. Yeah, so he loaded me up. but It was mainly um, Polaroids and um, a few other things there, cool. which are a couple of interesting little pieces. Anything, uh, Ira, new to you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> when you were here, did you see that uh, prototype camera that I was uh, putzing around with? You showed me many prototype cameras. No, it was sitting on my desk in pieces. No, then I did not. Okay. Anyway, I sent that to Radu to fully assemble it. I had like the lens was separate and everything. Anyway, um, I got a camera from the last, what was it, Wetzlar auction. It was a six by six stable prototype SLR, but it came with a basically a show lens almost like a dummy lens okay i looked through all my stuff you know that i don't really care about and i found a nice focusing helicoid and i just got a brand new rodenstock helicon lens with a a contour shutter that i'm going to be sending to radu also and make everything a real working camera let me show it to you Sure, go get it. And and I want to know if Radu will fix contacts once. <laughs> no. no, he will not. You're going to end up sending that to Eric yet? Yeah, I don't know. I, I might end up just flipping it. You know, it's, it's, I really, really like it, and I do want to shoot at least one roll through it before it dies, but it's just like, it's going to kill me. There you go. All right. All right, here's the camera. Uh, you have to raise the mirror manually with this thing over here. So real quick, while you're doing this, I'm going to try and describe it because we don't share the video, but it looks like um, kind of a six by nine size TLR box camera, but with only a single round hole in the front of it with some kind of reflex mirror. Here's the focusing helicoid. Right now, there is a 50 millimeter lens on, which is not big enough. Okay. So so I just got this brand new Rodenstock Elegon lens. Okay. I don't know if you can read it. This Not, is going to go onto the front, and then it's like pure serendipity. I have this thing mounted on God only knows what. It's a perfect match for the screw holes that are already in the camera. Wow, okay. Them. And this thing matches up perfectly with them. It looks like a six by nine. It looks like six by nine, but 
Is it, one, is it 120? Yes. So it's a 120. It looks like a box camera, but like Mike yeah, said. Six by six. Yeah, is, six, is, six, is, six, the, six. is the mirror, does the mirror act as the shutter too? No, no. No. The, the mirror just has to be oh, raised. So you get the shutter in the lens then. Okay. Yeah. And it, it has what looks to be like a fairly typical Rolly Flex style flip up waist level finder yeah. on the top. Yeah, that's, that's exactly this, what it appears to be. But That's right now, amazing. it's like a jigsaw puzzle it has to be reassembled. Yeah. When so, it's done, you'll see it uh, in Facebook. So, so Ira, when I was there, um, showed me a few other prototype cameras that I took some pictures with. And uh, I, I didn't get as many photos as I would have liked. But I'll try and have some pretty neat looking things that are basically one of a kind, kind of like that. But if you don't mind, Ira, you know, when you get a chance, send us a picture and we'll include it. Uh, well, no, I guess maybe that. You know, we, we have the video on here for the Zoom call just so we can see it, but we don't share that in the podcast because uh, editing video is a nightmare. That's definitely neat. Uh, Anthony? I, I've just been sending stuff off for repair to get things up and running. So the two Super Icontas. Yeah. And I sent, uh, I had a friend that had given me a, uh, a 1969 uh, Black F that was just pristine. And at Paul's advice, I sent it down to Pro Camera and had a complete restoration done on it. And it's just, it's delightful to shoot. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's got a working photomic meter and it looks like it came, it looks like it was unboxed last week. Yeah, that's uh, cool. And it's got the 1.4 and it's just like such a classic camera to shoot. I'm just having a blast with it. I've got it loaded up with Velvia 50. Uh, I don't have any good gear, uh, but I, I got a book. I, I'm working on some Chinese camera reviews for next February, Chinese New Year. I'll have two reviews but finding information online about the chinese camera industry is very very difficult because there's just not as much out there so uh, i was recommended this book it's called cameras of the people's republic of china uh it's by guy name, yeah red it's by yeah. douglas douglas saint denny uh he he writes a little bit about himself that he's an american i believe he was born somewhere in pennsylvania uh but he ended up moving to china and lived there with his wife i think he was a professor but he became interested in Chinese cameras and started, you know, developing contacts in China uh, that he could talk to. A lot of the people he encountered were initially reluctant to give any information out uh, for a variety of reasons. But over time, he was able to build up enough trust with the Chinese people to put together this book, which it's not huge. I mean, it's, it's hardcover. It's 140 some pages long. But, I mean, he's got a lot of great information about Chinese cameras, a little bit of the history of the factories there. Yeah, um, just in, so. in case anybody happens to win the lottery this week, okay. the, uh, the Lights Camera Auction in Austria has two Chinese cameras coming up that are very rare. One is the Red Flag, which everybody has seen, but nobody has. And yeah. the other one, I don't even know the name of it. It's an SLR. It has a curved nameplate in the front. It was a. I think if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was uh, based off of the Zenit. If you give me it's a second, it's very possible. It almost looks like a Leica body. Is that it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Zinjan or something like that. Zinjan. It sounded, like a, it sounded yeah. like a symbol manufacturer. Yeah. If it's you like look, Purple Mountain. It's the Purple Mountain. If you guys look at this really closely, it's it's a Zenit body. The Soviet Union worked very closely with the Chinese. In fact, there are actual Fed copies of or chinese copies of feds they made copies of the zenit and you know that so you'll see a lot of correlation between those but like iris said they're very very rare a part of the problem in addition to low 
production is there have been multiple revolutions in China over the years. And um, I, I'm not going to pretend to butcher it because I don't remember off the top of my head, but there was one, I think, in, in the 50s or 60s where basically anything that was even remotely Western, like cameras, were just destroyed. And people who did have them weren't allowed to talk about it. So there's there's a lot of of history that was lost as a result of those. And then, then just a, a general reluctance of people to want to talk about this. So if you're interested in the Chinese camera industry, either get that book or wait till February when I'll have two reviews, uh, briefly summarizing what, what's right in there. It's probably the same camera. So that's going to yeah. go for quite a big number. And that's at the, which, which auction you said? This is at the lights camera auction. Okay. It used, okay. It used to be the uh, Westlake. Okay. Gotcha. Well, well, I before we I, move off the Chinese cameras, though, I have to ask, since you've got that book, Mike, is the Five Goats a real camera? Or is yes. that a, yeah, that's a TLR, real, isn't it? It's yeah. a TLR. Yeah, it, it really did exist. Uh, there is a picture of one in here somewhere. That's another oh. one that no one's ever seen, unless you've got one, Ira. No, I don't collect uh, six by six TLRs. I have zero. I was trying to get him to at least get a Foatlander Superb. I think that would... If I get one, that's probably where I'm going to start. Yeah, that's a good place to start. All right. Well, uh, this has been a a load of fun. Uh, Hong, thank you for joining. I hope you enjoyed your time here. Um, It's been fun talking to you on Facebook, but then getting to talk to you face-to-face is super cool. Um, Ira, a total surprise. I'm I'm glad you're able to join, so thank you for coming. The, The amount of knowledge you have there in that room... Uh, and all the other rooms are, it's just absolutely mind, mind blowing. I mean, I don't even know any other way to put it. Uh, Vlad Kern gets the, the number one presentation award, but, but Ira gets the number one selection and variety award. And then of course, Mike Novak, uh, I, I did not realize it was you because uh, the name showed up as, as a, a pseudonym, we'll just say. But um, that's it for our show. Thank you guys for coming. And we'll be here again next week. Uh, same time, same bat channel. And everybody have a good weekend. You too. Thanks. For a week, great I show. Say. Thank you. How do I turn this thing off now? <laughs> <laughs>